0: Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today I'm joined by Morley Robbins, who is a repeat guest. You may remember from my last interview with him, but if you don't, I'll remind you. (laughs) He uh, isn't formally trained as a health expert, but has taken it on as a passion of his and has, as a result of that, made a dedication. I mean, there's very few people I know that are Diving into literature for three hours or more a day and reviewing the science, and not just the ones, the articles that were just published, but really going way back, sometimes more than a century ago. So, and when you do that for years and years and years, you, in and your, and your mind works, you're going to come up with some really good understanding of the science and the reality of things. And he's, his focus and passion has really been more the minerals. Um, so, in some ways, he's the mineral man but initial focus was on iron or magnesium. Then it kind of shifted to iron and then from iron to copper and then all the micronutrients that are really vital to integrate the copper into your system, which is one of the most challenging areas is really copper. And and virtually no one understands this. In my view, I don't think there's any other individual out there who's put the whole package together in this area better than Morley. And it's great pleasure and privilege to connect with him and i've been able to twist his arm to a really high degree and uh he's committed to writing a book together so he's kind of (laughs) been delayed for a bit but that's fine so because he's he's just needs to be free to follow his passion and just really unearth these details that no one else is looking at so i think you're really going to enjoy this it's going to probably expose you to some concepts that you haven't been uh, bef- exposed to before, previously unless you've studied or read more of these work. So we're gonna start, it's gonna be fun. <laughs> I'm not sure where we're going, but it's gonna be great. So welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, if someone had told me in uh, 2010, when you and I first met, that we would we'd be- we would be chatting. Some 20- oh, Where was that at? Where do we meet? Weston A. Price. Okay. Down in Dallas. And uh, I thought, you know, here I am, I'm meeting the legend, <laughs> Dr. Mercola. And I'm like, it was just, it was a very special moment for me. You know, I, I had danced with some giants in the healthcare industry, but no one on the clinical side that had your stature. And, and now here we are having conversations and planning a book, it's just, it's an absolute honor and uh, kind of a dream come true. So I really appreciate the chance to have these exchanges because the information needs to get out and and you respect that and honor that and you're making every effort to enhance that. So it's a real opportunity here too.
0: Well, it's (laughs) mutual because, you know, you're, I, without your efforts, I would be unaware of this really vital, important component. And in retrospect, I mean, you, there wasn't much that I wasn't doing after knowing what you most a good portion of what your right. that knowledge base is. It hasn't really changed a lot except to reignite my passion to remove my iron. Interesting. So as, as a result of your reminder, because I've been aware of iron for, for a long time. Yeah. Way into last century, like literally the late eighties.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: And yeah. so I had started the process for myself, but then I just thought what I, what the, the, New part of the puzzle that you brought that I had no understanding of was I thought it was a temporary thing that you just drain yourself of some blood that you'll be fine. But what I failed to appreciate and you showed to me is that the iron stores in your body are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And essentially, if you commit to a life to a, a program of lowering your iron, it's pretty much a lifelong program because you just can't, especially after over 50 I mean, if you're in your younger age, you probably could do it intermittently, but at 50, it's got to be regular because it's just, there's so much t- iron in your tissues that when you drain it out, it just k- kind of comes to an equilibrium and it continues to saturate your stores. So not your stores, but the, the serum levels.
1: Yeah. And, and I think one of the most important um, bits of understanding is to realize that if, if copper is not adequate in the diet which is a fairly safe bet worldwide, but that's a very significant uh, defect in the modern diet. And if copper's low, iron's going to build in the liver. Uh-huh. And a, a, a liver that's filling up with iron is going to totally change its physiology. It's going to change the frequency. It's going to change its immuno properties. And it's just, I, I think that's been uh, probably one of the greatest ahas for me is to realize that the the liver is, I mean, liver metabolism is highly dependent on copper and retinol. And there's not a lot of um awareness of that. And it just seems that everyone just said, well, yeah, it's an iron organ and we've got to store iron there. It's like, wait, there, there's some other pieces of the puzzle that we've got to be aware of. And I and I think the probably the most dangerous part of um exploring the work of, of what is iron metabolism, the words high and low seem to dominate the literature. Iron's too high, iron's too low, You know, iron deficiency anemia, the greatest nutrient deficiency on planet earth. And it implies that it's a, a ruler function. It's a simple math, it's high, it's low. When in fact, and I think what we've discussed, and I think what you really appreciate is it's more like calculus. It's a very sophisticated process of the interaction between copper and iron. And if that interaction doesn't go well, iron is gonna start to accumulate in the tissue and it's gonna start in the liver, but it's gonna go elsewhere, as you well know. And I think that is a really central part of kind of the takeaways of this conversation is make sure that people know that iron does accumulate and that iron, uh, can be released through blood donations, and as you suggest, especially as you get into your fifties, sixties, seventies, it needs to be a regular part of your uh, health routine.
0: Yeah, I think I, if you don't mind, I'd like to just review this topic a little. I know it's not one of your favorites, but you have a deep knowledge of the physiology, and it's it is relatively complex. I mean, we can. Go, I don't want to go that deep and yeah. you know do the reticular endothelial system and the hip side and all that, but but just to like sort of superficially cover it. So people understand it. So, and, and you talked about iron in the liver and I believe the clinical term for excess iron in the liver is hemosiprosis. Right. So the typical response from someone who's just been exposed to this will say, "Well, wonder where's all this extra iron coming from, you know, and why do I have such high iron? Why is it such a pernicious problem? Not only pernicious, but the other be pervasive, Right, I mean, it's almost universal, even in people, and I definitely want you to go into the reason that that so many people get confused on. In fact, I just consulted with a woman um, last week who's had a serious problem. She had very high platelets, and it looked like it might have been a blood cancer. But then she also had really, really low irons, ostensibly low iron. Her her serum ferritin was eight, eight. Sure. Of course, they put her on iron supplements, right? I immediately took her off the iron supplements and put her on copper and retinol right. and uh, a lot of other things. But so, you know, why don't you talk about that component and then how it's almost universally a mistake when you have a low serum ferritin, which is the classic diagnostic strategy? I mean, if an institute clinician will do some of the other tests like total iron binding capacity and serum transfer, but most just do the serum ferritin.
1: So let, that's great. Let's start with some basics. <clears throat> so there, um, it's important for practitioners, especially to not measure iron status with just one marker. Uh, and I, I think a lot of practitioners are falling into that trap of just using serum ferritin. Uh, we'll, we can come back to that. But, but I think it's important to emphasize there really are three key um, ways to measure iron status. Uh, the biggest, biggest uh, concentration of iron in the body is in our hemoglobin. It's, it's 70% of the iron is in our red blood cells. So it's an enormous bolus of iron. And, and it's been used as a marker for iron status from the time of the Civil War up to uh, the late 1900s. I mean, well, the shift began because of a very important article written by uh, Jacobs et al in 1972 in the British Medical Journal uh, about the importance of serum ferritin. And so they kind of moved the spotlight away from uh, hemoglobin and started to focus on the serum ferritin. but. Hemoglobin far and away is essential to understand what is going on with the biggest bulk of iron. Then uh, the the second uh, marker that I really focus on is called serum iron. And it's a very small percentage. It's less than 1% of the iron, but it's a very important measure of iron because it's, it's really getting at the recycling program, iron recycling, and so, you and I have been talking for, for 10 minutes and every, every second of every day, we have to turn over two and a half million red blood cells. That's a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of activity. In the course of 24 hours, it's 200 billion red blood cells need to be turned over. But what's a surprise is to learn that only 25 milligrams of iron are needed to support that 24 hour cycle, but 24 of those 25 milligrams, 95% of the iron is coming from this recycling program. It's a very significant understanding that, that the serum iron, it's only representing a small percent, but it's representing the efficiency of the iron recycling. And so um, hemoglobin, should be between 12 and a half 13 and a half for a woman, you know 14 and a half 15 and a half for a guy um, that would be considered you know functionally uh, healthy hemoglobin levels serum iron for a woman should be about 100 and for a guy should be about 120 and the closer it is to 100 or 120 the more efficient that recycling program is and then we get to the third bucket that you're referring to, alluding to, and that's serum ferritin. And what, what's important for folks to realize is that there's actually four different types of ferritin in the body. There's, um, there's, uh, there's what's called heavy chain and light chain. Those are the two broad classifications. Well, heavy, heavy chain ferritin. Is referring to the, the ferritin protein inside cells and inside the mitochondria that require copper in order to work properly and that form of ferritin is like an atm machine and it's you know in and out in and out and it depends on copper to get it in and get it out it's really really important and the other form is called light chain and I going to back up the heavy chain is more associated with heart and kidney and the light chain is more focused on the liver and the spleen and so the liver and spleen are very much involved in this recycling program and there's no copper required to get the iron in there but the complication is it's not easy to get the iron back out and then we get to the form that everyone is familiar with is called serum ferritin. And the, the ferritins that I'm referring to, the heavy chain and light chain, those are inside the cell. Well, the ferritin, it's called serum ferritin, as outside the cell, it's in the blood, it's not in the cell. And what's very, um, what is not well known, is that this ferritin that shows up in the blood is very iron poor. It doesn't have iron in it. The iron <clears throat> has, been, has been discharged in the liver and then the protein gets secreted out when there isn't a good function in the liver to recycle the iron. Now, excuse I'm, me for,
0: for yeah, a go, moment. Go ahead. Go ahead. Marley, because it just occurred to me that, that as you were describing this, that there's a really important area of confusion yeah, because you're talking about serum ferritin serum is in the blood and you said earlier that 70% of the iron is in the blood but it's actually in the blood cells exactly in the blood cells. Yes. so the serum ferritin that you're measuring in the blood is really outside the red blood cells Absolutely. so, Thank I, you. so that was, you know I, th- I think many people get that confused I know I certainly do so no so-
1: that's a very very important part because of and when we see a tube of blood, it's red. Yeah. We put it in a centrifuge and we spin it down and it turns into two liquids. The, the bottom is red and it's called packed red blood cells, as you well know. And then the, the, the liquid at the top, it's kind of a, kind of a milky white almost.
0: Well, I and, hope it's not milky white. That would mean you have high triglycerides. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's clear yellow okay
1: all right okay that i'll I'll buy that so it's a different color it's not red it's a different color and it's called serum and i spell it a little differently i spell it s-e-a-r-u-m because it's actually supposed to be like seawater it's supposed to have the mineral composition of seawater and and that's where this uh serum iron is hanging out in the serum and that's where the serum ferritin is hanging out, is in the serum, in this um, yellowish fluid that you're referring to. And so that's a really important distinction for people to understand the subtlety of iron. It's the bolus is in the red blood cell, and small amounts, very small amounts, are in the serum. But the the real head fate is serum ferritin, because. It's not representative of iron per se, the iron was discharged in the liver. And where I first learned about that was in my conversations with Douglas Kell, who's a famous iron biologist at University of Manchester, and he's written extensively about this in uh, 2009, 2014, 18, 19. Uh, he was very actively involved in trying to explain what was going on with COVID as well. And so there's a lot of confusion in uh, the public and in the practitioner circles because of this nuance of what serum ferritin is really representing. And I think it's important that we need to, we need to know all three. But we need to know the subtleties of what's really being implied. And it's the, as you uh, know, and, and we've discussed previously, it's the bookends of serum ferritin that are very confusing and very significant. Because the easiest one to explain is rising serum ferritin starts to get high, and it's highly correlated with inflammation or an infection. And again, it makes sense. The liver's taking it on the chin. You know, there's, there's something going on. Iron is not being um, metabolized properly. Pathogens might be involved. And so the, the body starts to secrete the uh, ferritin in a more significant way. And for a woman, the serum ferritin the red flag goes up at 150. For a guy, the red flag goes up at 300. (laughs) It it can go up into the thousands, as you know. I mean, it can go up into the 5,000s and even higher with severe uh, chronic disease and and inflammation. And that's easy to understand. It's when we come back to the client that you were just working with, where it was low, it was single-digit ferritin, Mm. and, and the alarm bells go off, and there are only a few authors that I've come across that even talk about low ferritin. Uh, Deschemin is, 20, 2015, probably the, the best of the of the lot that I've found. And what he's indicating is that low ferritin is an indication of metabolic breakdown in the spleen. And that his best estimate is that it's some kind of parasitic dynamic that's affecting protein production, the ferritin protein is not getting transcribed properly. And so the the misunderstanding is that, just as you noted, uh, this particular patient was put on iron supplements because her ferritin was low. What was the first thing you did? You stopped the iron supplements and you started to introduce uh, the copper retinol and other factors to support the recycling and i think it's probably one of the greatest uh, errors made one of the students who's gone through the uh, rcp institute training um and she's she's had 80 iron infusions dr McCullough, which is just unbelievable and i think she said it was like twelve thousand dollars over the course of-
0: an <laughs> insult to injury
1: yeah i had insult to injury but what's exciting she i think she just turned 50 recently. She has six children and they're all doing great, but it took her eight years, but she donated blood for the first time in her life because her hemoglobin was normal for the first time in her life after she had really disciplined herself with the root cause protocol. So it, it's a testament of the amazing resilience of the human body. But I can tell you that first conversation that she and I had eight years ago was uncomfortable because she couldn't believe that her doctors were misinformed, and so over a process of time she came around, and then she decided to take the training, and she really um, uh, harnessed herself to make sure that she could do this. And it when on on, it was around her birthday, she posted on Facebook this. Picture her lovely arm uh, giving a pint of blood, and she was just euphoric that she was able to do that. So I think it's it's an important lesson for people to realize is that the body does have this natural mechanism of recycling, It does have this ability to have resilience, but that resilience is really largely dependent upon bioavailable copper. And that's where I think a lot of the misunderstanding is, is that A lot of the articles and textbooks around iron metabolism rarely, if ever, mention the copper side of the house. And in traditional Chinese medicine, copper is referred to as the general and iron is referred to as the foot soldier. When you put it in that context, then you begin to understand uh, orders of magnitude of, of influence that copper has Relative to iron, but that's not well understood in uh, the average uh, clinical circles that, that people would be exposed to.
0: And maybe you can touch on some of the reasons why these iron levels get elevated, um, largely related to the fact that we don't have a, a typical excretory system for iron unless we lose blood. That's <laughs> it. You, you, or you sweat it. You can sweat it out in saunas, but it's not really no, I mean, you high can, levels.
1: Yeah, you're not going to get the level you're going to get with a blood donation, but there is no enzymatic function. There's no hormonal function. The only way to really get rid of excess iron is gravity, and that's mm-hmm. the blood donation. And, you know, our, our ancestors, you know, they would, they would uh, work the fields, and then they would fight in the fields, and they would get injured. But, but their wives, they had a monthly blood loss. And it's, it's well known that uh, one of the main reasons why women outlive men, and this was uh, the, the, you know, the work of, of some very famous hematologists, um, but uh, Jerry Sullivan being uh, instrumental in this work back in 1982, he published a very important article in Lancet Magazine saying that, oh, it, it's, it's the female cycle, the menstrual cycle is what allows women to live longer because they're dumping iron. Every month for about forty years, and no one ever thought to connect those dots. And less iron is less oxidative stress, which is going to create less metabolic dysfunction, which is going to create less um, symptoms. And bottom line,
0: tissue damage essentially.
1: Yeah, and that the, the challenge we've got now is that and you you alluded to it, and I I don't know how deep we want to go into it, but in order to have um, proper understanding of iron metabolism, at some point, we need to talk about hepcidin and we need to talk about hemociterin. Well, those are very almost taboo subjects in the clinical world because they begin to introduce other proteins and other storage lockers for iron that are not um, readily discussed, not readily studied. Um, I mean, there are only, I've only found two authors who write about hemocytorin. Uh, Dr. Sato wrote for many, many years, uh, and, and there's a more recent uh, publication, but not a lot of talk about hemocytorin. Uh, and you referred to, again, the liver accumulation, hemosiderosis. And what's important for people to understand is that if, if a ferritin protein can hold, they, they claim it can hold as much as 4,500 atoms of iron, that's a lot of iron. And what makes iron special is there's four unpaired electrons. So that's a lot of unpaired electrons in the ferritin uh, protein. Well, hemocytorin can hold 10 times more iron, which means it's it's holding 10 times more unpaired electrons. Well, that's a polite way of saying oxidative stress. And when hemocytorin starts to build up, in the tissue, that's, that's when people have some serious issues with, with our iron regulation. But what's wildly confusing is hepcidin. And it's, um, you know, it, it, it comes from the HAMP gene, hepcidin, acute microbial protein. So it's got some connection to pathogens. And what, what's it trying to do? Hepcidin is trying to get iron out of the circulation to get it away from the pathogens but it's, it's a bit of a slippery fish because it, it reacts to iron status, it reacts to inflammation status, it reacts to hormonal status. I mean, estrogen and testosterone have significant influence over hepcidin. Uh, it's, it's reacting to copper status. I mean, it's just, so it's, <clears throat> when, when people are being um, lectured by their doctor that their ferritin is out of line, should be asking about well then let's let's study hemo or let's study uh, hepcidin Mm -hmm. and i'm I'm guessing they're going to be met with blank stares because it's not regularly measured as you know and and even if it were measured it's well it's important to know that um elevated levels of of acute excuse me of active hormone d can suppress hepcidin retinol deficiency can can increase I mean, we start to get into these uh, switchbacks that suddenly the the whole understanding of iron, uh, again, it isn't just around ferritin as we're discussing, and it begins to get into a, a more refined understanding of what's the overall metabolic status. Are we producing energy? Is copper doing its job to produce energy? But is copper doing its job to regulate uh, the iron recycling, because that's the, the, the key is understanding that this uh, constant recycling system of the uh, red blood cells, <clears throat> the, the, the iron doorway is being opened by a copper doorman. And if ferroportin isn't doing its job, well, then we're going to have a problem. And, and what is hepcidin's job? Hepsidin as a protein is to shut down the iron doorway. Well, so suddenly we have this very significant dynamic between this very important iron egress doorway, very important, that needs uh, bioavailable copper, and if bioavailable copper is not there, this hepsidin and protein is going to shut it down, and that's I think to me that's where a lot of the confusion is, is because the I would argue. Um, based on reading and conversations with uh, researchers that the, the true anemia that exists on the planet isn't one of iron deficiency, it's one of copper deficiency not allowing for proper iron recycling. And so that's a, that's a very important nuance. And the, where the real um, misunderstanding is, is iron may look low in the blood No, ferritin looks low, or hemoglobin looks low, serum iron looks low, but it's high in the tissue. That's, there's no blood test that measures iron status in the tissue.
0: Well, you do a biopsy, which most people aren't gonna do.
1: Do biopsy. And I've got some colleagues now down in uh, Miami. Uh, One is a radiologist who's very proficient with MRI. And he's—he was a little skeptical about this message that he had heard our conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, "Well, why don't you why don't you measure your iron status in your liver?" And he said, "All right, I will."
0: <laughs>
1: Suffice it to say, he's now a believer. He was shocked at how much iron
0: he's—he's
1: he's developed a way. How do
0: you do it with MRI or with a box? With a Tesla two
1: MRI. And he's developed a scoring uh, technique with uh, Siemens and who, who's the other big um, radiology um, Siemens and
0: He's uh, laboratory test. Do, <laughs> or not a uh, hospital test. but uh, that is this interesting. I did not realize you could quantify iron with an MRI. And, w- and what
1: he's now doing is now he's going to start to go in and he's going to be able, he's measuring iron, not just in the liver. He's going to measure it in the brain. In the Jeez, liver, that is great. Just, and so it, it. I think your your comment was absolutely spot on that you have to do a, a biopsy. Well, now we can do it with it with an imaging test,
0: which is wow. kind of a game changer. That is great. That is just. And he, This this work was catalyzed by our by our conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely catalyzed. Wow, <laughs> that's very really good. All right, so I want I want to tie you some have no idea who who
1: heard this conversation. It was the, it, whatever took. Whenever it took place was it March or April? It was like boom.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so let's type the loose ends with hepcidin. Okay. It is a bit confusing. So it essentially limits when it's active, it limits the reabsorption of iron, which should theoretically lower iron. Because as you mentioned, we have like 95% of the iron that is um, used every day, the 25 milligrams, 24 of it is reabsorbed. So hepcidin impacts on this variable. So it, it can play with that. And lower the amount of reabsorption to essentially lower, lower your iron. Is, is, do I have that right? Or is it that it you absolutely
1: sense? have it. It's both the reabsorption and another term would be recycling of the iron. And so uh, the, the formal name that you alluded to a little while ago, reticuloendothelial system, it's like, it's really a scary term. Well, after you dig into it, you find out it's it's all about recycling. And our body... The human, and I guess it's true of all mammals, but the human body is designed to recycle iron. One of the most important things that we're able to do, and that is really dependent on bioavailable copper. A real quick fact to it I just was reading an article about yeast, you know, um, brewer's yeast and baker's yeast, and the way they refer to the yeast cell, it's mini mammals. I'd never seen it written up that way. There were, the physiology of the yeast cell is almost identical to man, mammalian physiology, so they call them mini mammals. I thought that was kind of cool.
0: Interesting. So um, I want to get back to the iron removal process and the yeah. transfusion because it's still, or not transfusion, the removal of phlebotomies. Right. So when you, because almost everyone watching this, really needs to commit to a program of doing that. And the minimum is twice a year, better is four, mm-hmm. if you can. Uh, the problem is that you're taking such a large volume out that you know it's literally 10% of your blood supply for most people. Some could be more if you're a small woman or less if you're a large man. So um, that can hit you, especially as you get lower levels. Uh, so ideally it's best to you take out less more frequently. So you could take out half a unit every month mm-hmm. which would be six units of blood And you, that's much better tolerated it tends to be a little more expensive because you have to hire someone to come to your home to remove it right. and uh you say well what i'm going to do the blood well what i say is throw it in your garden because <laughs> you know, it's a good nutrient for the for the for whatever you're trying to grow uh so it's not really hazardous waste it's it's biologically useful material to stimulate plant growth uh, but uh what I, what, and I, you could do it even lower. I just wanted to share what I've been doing since we've, probably for the last six months now, is I take out two ounces of blood once a week. Oh, interesting. Ounces. Okay. Yeah, every week, I take out two ounces. And then when I still had the catheter in, then I hook myself up to an IV. And I initially was infusing four grams of magnesium chloride once a week, but I've dropped it down to three. Okay. So getting the magnesium and taking out the iron. Wow. It, it, it's gradually increasing my iron by magnesium levels and, and finally getting my iron levels. So we're, just, we're on the path. So that when you do ounces a week, it comes out to about some, with my blood test, about six to seven units a year.
1: Okay. And are you doing that yourself or are you still working with a phlebotomist?
0: No, no, I, I can, I, I, you know, I insert the catheter because I, you know, I basically have done 10,000 blood draws. I'm really proficient at yeah. getting the catheter in yeah. and, um, but what's in your arm, you need two fingers to <laughs> twist that. I tried to hold it. I couldn't do it by myself. So I have to have someone twist the beam uh, okay. onto the That's couch. what I was trying to visualize. How are you going to do I, I can't do it. I tried. I can't
1: do it. Well, you're, you're a better man than I. I don't think I could willingly put a, a needle up my arm. I just... Oh, I, it's I'm easy. Fi- to, I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm fine going to a blood center or having a phlebotomist come here. and I always look away. And then I'm fine. But yeah. if I look, if I look at it, I'm like, oh yeah, I
0: think you're more normal than <laughs> you're typical. You're more typical. Yeah, I,
1: I think I am. It's just it's just it's hard to, to do that. But it's so it's so important. And I don't I think what's amazing is um, the the sheer simplicity of doing a blood donation, a regular um, having regular blood loss, and what it does to revitalize the body the part that I'm not sure we've really talked about is when you do have that blood loss, it, it trips a wire for erythropoietin, It's a very important hormone that, that triggers the production of new red blood cells. And, and the beauty is it's got, it actually has two signals. One, we're going to make some more red blood cells. The second signal is let go of the iron in the tissue. It has a very powerful effect of releasing the iron uh, to get it back down to the bone marrow, where it's needed to, uh, to make the um, the new red blood cells, the the, the the proficiency is pretty powerful. And so I would guess that the, the more frequent process that you're engaged in, it's maybe it's taking some of the sting out of the system, that the body just has this natural response to blood loss. And instead of it being this big um, bolus, you know, a unit, a full unit of blood, uh, you're able to kind of,
0: yeah. It's just much gentler on the body and you don't yeah. get these, these huge uh, feedback hormonal uh, reactions, you know, the yeah. high EPO levels. So yeah, I, if you can, I mean, most people aren't going to be able to do that, but I, I, to me, this is really one of the most important interventions I do. And I look forward to it really look forward to it. Actually. It's a, it's <laughs> as odd as that may be. No. But one of the reasons that catalyze my commitment to this is, the, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the the introduction is that you helped me understand that this, the tissue iron, that's so important not what's in the the serum, the the blood serum uh, ferritin level. So, and when you take out a whole unit of blood, 500 CCs, it's about 250 milligrams of red blood cells with your hematocrit, depending on your hematocrit level, that's about about 20 250 milligrams of iron 250 milligrams That's right i understand it so if you do that four times a year you're taking out a gram but why don't you go into tell how much most iron have most of us have iron stored in our tissues it's it's astounding you you're not going to be able to get it down to healthy levels in your lifetime probably most of you right
1: well this this really came to light um it was around it was in uh, the timing was around my 65th birthday. And I'd been reading quite a bit of research by Robert Crichton, who I I guess he still would be considered the Dean of Iron Biology on the planet. Uh, He's in the Netherlands. And his textbooks are used extensively in, in uh, medical schools and other uh, professional schools. And so I, I called him up out of the blue and was complimenting him on his, on his research. We were having a very nice chat. And I said, I have a favor. He said, what's that? I said, would you send me one of your recent textbooks, you know, inscribed? He said, oh, I, I would be delighted. And so as he was getting it out and writing the inscription, he said, no morely. Like, you know that we accumulate one milligram of iron every day. We're on the planet. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I've read your research. I know, I'm very familiar. And this isn't just <clears throat> Dr. Crickton, it's Gutteridge and Hollowell. it's it's Douglas Kell, it's some other very, Dr. Um, Weinberg, um, uh, Dr. Weinberg, Um that University of Indiana, uh, these are all noted iron experts who have all agree on this accumulation of iron. So the simple math,
0: get your calculator out. Well, before, before we go to the math, yeah. just a clar- minor clarification, yeah. it, a milligram is stored in your tissues, diffusely throughout the body, but primarily in some of the major issues, uh, organs like you mentioned, earlier, the, like the liver. Exactly. So, But it's stored diffusely there, a milligram every day
1: right milligram a day and so the math is a milligram for every uh every you multiply your age times 365 well we're getting into some pretty big numbers you know i'll be i'll be 70 later this year and it's a scary number you know it's um and so it's 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 in the
0: thousands it's in the 20 20 to 30 grams
1: yeah right and the thing is um, I think that would be maybe one of the most important things for people to realize is that this is a, uh, it's a hidden factor. It's not a well-known factor that's playing in the background of the symptoms that you've got going, whether you've got arthritis or osteoporosis or vision issues or heart issues. Again, the iron is being stored throughout the body. And it's just not a well understood and well known dynamic, and as people begin to embrace that and realize that, to your earlier point, there's only one way to get rid of it. The body doesn't say, "Wow, I've got too much iron. I'm going to trigger the the X Y Z hormone." Just like, for other
0: other toxins, but not for iron.
1: But not for top, not for iron. Exactly. And so it's it's a formidable formidable uh, physiological fact is that we have this bolus of iron in our tissue. And again, um, Jerry Sullivan's, the the pathologist, um, his real focus was on cardiology. And he developed what what became known as the iron heart hypothesis. And And it's not a very popular thesis with cardiologists, but he was able to prove that it was accumulation of iron in the heart muscle cells that were causing a wide spectrum of all of the issues whether it's a fibrillation uh the uh, enlarged heart all sorts of, of my um any kind of uh myocardial infarct i mean it was he was able to sink it back to the accumulation of iron and what that was doing to kill energy production in that incredibly important organ in our body and so it's it's just the uh, accumulation of iron in our organs is very uh, significant because these organs are supposed to be producing energy. That's, and to do their function for the, for the, for the uh, stomach to do what it's supposed to do, for the liver to do, what, 500 different functions, the kidneys and so on. Well, when they stop doing those functions, it's a safe bet. It's because iron is accumulating in those tissues And it's affecting energy production, which is then going to create oxidative stress, which is then going to create the metabolic dysfunction that we call this symptom or that symptom. And that's where the alignment of understanding the importance of too much iron syncs up with the symptoms that are laid out in the Merck manual. You can trace just almost every one of them back to this iron-copper dysregulation, because copper is supposed to be regulating the iron. And when it doesn't do that, it starts to accumulate. And that, I think that's really what you want people to understand is that this uh, very delicate mechanism, this essential mechanism uh, is uh, subject to the status of bioavailable copper. And if that's not right, the iron is going to get out of balance and then cause the, uh, the dis- dysfunction and dysregulation in the body.
0: And yeah, we'll jump into the copper and some of other variables in a moment, but I just want to tie this Section up on iron. We went a lot deeper than I was anticipating, but that's fine. A lot of people are going to love this. Uh, but if you wouldn't mind, you teach a course on this, maybe you could mention a little bit about that and, and enroll people and you've trained a lot of people already. Uh, So you're very familiar with teaching people the details of the laboratory analysis of this iron assessment. So we talked about some of them. I wonder maybe you can just review the things like the serum transfer level, the total iron binding capacity. You've already mentioned the serum iron. Then, of course, the CBC, you've got the hemoglobin level. So can you kind of walk us through how one would look at that laboratory? Because it's unusual for even a astute clinician to order all of those when they're analyzing iron.
1: Yeah. So on the on the um uh, the CBC you're you're going to get um uh, obviously going to get hemoglobin, but you're uh, you're also going to get uh things called uh MCH, MCV, MCHC, and then RDW. These are these are for me really important markers. Uh and re- the first three are really related to hemoglobin status, concentration, volume, um, and these were originally developed by a uh, world-renowned hematologist named Max Weintraub. Uh, originally got his, his um, medical degree in Canada, got his degree in physiology from uh, Tulane University, and uh, went to Hopkins, uh, wrote the first textbook in hematology in the late 40s, and ended up starting the um, medical program, medical school program at University of Utah in the early 50s. But he developed these markers that when MCH, excuse me, MHC, MCHC and MCV are low, when those are low, those are signs of low bioavailable copper.
0: Well, typically, Our- traditionally thought to be low iron.
1: Yes, I know.
0: But uh, your, your correction <laughs> and clarification is this low bioavailable copper. Copper,
1: And then the other one is RDW, red blood cell distribution with RDW. And when that number starts to get too high, that's another sign of low bioavailable copper. Where RDW really uh, came into the limelight uh, the last couple of years was actually a study done at Hopkins in uh, April of 2020, where they began to notice the significant elevation of RDW with folks who had COVID. And so mm-hmm. we don't need to get into it now, but, but COVID affected copper status, which is affecting uh, RDW. So that, those are important markers to be aware of. But then we get into more traditional um, blood tests for iron status. We've, we've talked about hemoglobin. We've talked about serum iron, and we've talked about serum ferritin.
0: Um, well, but but, but yeah, don't... Let, I'm sorry to interrupt right. you again. But right. it, it occurred to me if you could insert a commentary on the, I mean, the, the, the interpretation of ferritin, yeah. because you've already established pretty clearly that would, would normally cause almost any astute clinician to, to immediately put someone on right. iron if they had a single digit ferritin, but so you really can't use it as a, as a sign of iron deficiency, but I'm wondering if you've, if you can comment on the ish, the fact that you can use it as a sort of a surrogate generalized co- concept or idea of how high the iron burden is based on the level of the serum ferritin. In other words, the higher it is, the worse you are. Okay. I mean, either, either for inflammation and or I- slash iron uh, overload.
1: So, so we're back to my conversation with Dr. Kell and I asked him point blank, I said, what's the ideal um yeah. ferritin level for his <laughs> and he said zero and i went what so again we have to be really careful um, where we i would never I, uh, the caution to the listeners and to the to the practitioners that might be following this or you know becoming aware of this i would never use ferritin only as an indication of iron status You need to see hemoglobin, serum iron, and serum ferritin. You need to see them in relationship to each other. And where I peg it, and I think um, Robert Thompson and some other practitioners are pegging it, is serum ferritin should be between 20 and 50. That seems to be a nice sweet spot for people. When the serum ferritin begins to get up in the hundreds, there's a significant Uh, Likelihood that there's pathology in the liver that's causing that, some infection or some kind of inflammatory process, and so that's a real uh, clear indication that there's too much um, release, too much secretion of the serum ferritin into the bloodstream. It's the other side that I think is so vexing, and when it gets below twenty, especially when it gets into single digits, like you faced with your with your patient. What I've come to to understand is that single-digit ferritin, coupled with some other markers that we're going to talk about, but TIBC, the total iron binding capacity, when TIBC starts to get too high, so high TIBC and low serum ferritin, I begin to suspect parasites in the spleen and or in the liver. And it's just, um, it's like a carpenter uses their thumb to measure an inch. That's kind of what lo- you know. single digit ferritin and elevated TIBC is. That's my inch rule of thumb that there's something going on here. And it isn't that there's iron deficiency, there's iron dysregulation. And what everyone needs to really focus on is what do I need to do to mobilize the iron? And that's gonna require by available copper, which is, it's really different than saying, let's just slap some iron into this person's body. And so and it's important that that people recognize that low ferritin does not mean low iron per se. It means low recycling. Some, something in the iron recycling system is out of balance and it needs um, significant attention, but I would argue that it's almost without exception, it's a lack of bioavailable copper. The spleen organ is intensely copper dependent. The liver intensely copper dependent. That's not well known in in clinical circles. Uh, and it was um, Joseph Orhaska who brought my attention to the spleen copper connection. he was he's probably one of the greatest copper biologists on the planet. And so, it's important for people to understand that and the spleen is just a little tiny organ but boy does it carry big sway in the body particularly as it relates to the recycling the other the other parts of it are in order to really understand iron you've got to understand copper and if you don't know what the copper status is both in terms of serum copper and serum ceruloplasmin and the ratio between copper and seruloplasmin, well, then you don't really have a a nuanced understanding of how copper might be influencing
0: that. I I definitely want to go to copper, but let me me just add in one potentially confusing element that many people are confused on, Uh, or clinicians certainly, is that when you see these single digit ferritins, the the reflex reaction is to put the person on iron. And interestingly, the person typically feels better. Yes. So that would, you know, it seems to be a powerful response to suggest you're on the right path. So can you help clear up that confusion? Right. So
1: we can use cocaine to wake up and we can use alcohol to go to sleep, but no one in their right mind would do it that way. And yes, excuse me, any heavy metal will increase the production of red blood cells. And I think that's the that's the surge that people are feeling when they feel better because they've taken iron. That's what they're seeing. Probably, um, if it's not the most important, it's certainly one of the top three articles by Robert Hodges, 1978, where he's measuring the impact of iron and retinol in human subjects. And it's, I, I the, the graphics in that article are profoundly important and maybe one of our, our sessions here we could actually use that as a as a uh, a reference point so people can see the meticulous work that Dr. Hodges does to show that yes when you do give someone iron if they if they're uh, showing really low hemoglobin if they're showing really that they're they've got anemia there's this infusion of iron there is this Temporary blip, and it lasts for six weeks. He measured it meticulously, and the hemoglobin spikes, and then it falls back down. And when and when does hemoglobin actually start to rise in a steady fashion to the level of uh, optimal hemoglobin? Is introduction of retinol into the diet, and this is a study that was done over uh, it was almost a two year period, and so. Uh, Again, the key principle is missing information equals missing truth. Well, if we don't know about Dr. Hodge's study, and it's it's an immensely important study to understand that yes, giving iron does have a temporary effect, but it's not long lasting and it's not really supporting the, the truth of iron physiology. Invariably, what the body needs is more bioavailable copper, that's made possible through retinol. That's why the retinol was so important in the study. And when retinol was introduced, it totally changed iron physiology to the, to the betterment of, of how people were, were responding. And that's where I think the, there's this complete bias in clinical circles is that if ferritin looks low, well, we've got to add iron. Well, Dr. Hodges would argue differently. Now again, people can say, "Well, that was 1978. What you know that that's ancient history." Well, I would I would stake my reputation on that study as opposed to the contemporary thinking today, where the level of iron that's being used in obstetrics, in geriatrics, in pediatrics, in in sports medicine, Doctor Rucola, it's a little criminal. It's criminal. It's 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 frightening, and it is. I would agree with you. It is criminal, and it's and it's because I believe, and, and you're seeking to tease this out in a significant way. There is a gross misunderstanding of the dynamic between copper and iron, and how significantly influenced iron status is influenced by the availability of copper in the body.
0: Okay, so thank you for expanding on that. And there's. I, just, I want to transition out of iron with this this final component and, and reinforce what you just said earlier, which is the fact that even to this day, I think many physicians are confused about the the clearly observed increased longevity of women over men, right. usually as a few years, and right. they attribute it not to the low iron. From secondary blood loss from the menstrual cycles, right. but to the hormonal shifts, usually higher estrogen. That's what the, that was. The, I think still many clinicians believe that. I really do. So, but that's not true. And then to support that, I mean, this is correlation, this is not causal, but there's a, a strong correlation evidence of the studies that review people who have donated blood. And the, the clinical benefits are observed. So I'm wondering if you can comment on those.
1: Well, I just I know the uh, the Red Cross and you know, those studies from the Red Cross I'm familiar with. I'm sure it's been done in other circles, but it, again, as you say, it, it may be more correlational than causal. But I think we could we could probably edge our way into causal. But uh, consistently, the the studies that are longitudinal in nature, longitudinal studies of, of iron donation. Blood blood donation, um, there's greater longevity in those individuals consistently, study after study after study, and I think it's reasonable to say that it's lower iron in our body is going to lead to lower oxidative stress. Again, you know your your focus, your zeal is around linoleic acid, and I totally respect that. But what's the match? It, to,
0: yeah, to, to the match is iron. Yeah, that's so it's,
1: people. It's important for people to know we've, we've got to cut that acid out. We've got to get this iron under control too. And that, that's the, the, the central part is getting people to realize that this iron dynamic is profoundly influential in our health status. And it's not a, I don't think it's a well-understood mechanism um, in, in clinical circles, much less their, their patients it just, it's, it's not been discussed openly in the way that I think it should be. And I think it's now, maybe it's coming to light and more and more people are certainly becoming aware of it.
0: Yeah. And what, just one last test before we go on to the copper and the retinol. Yeah. Um, I mentioned serum transfer, but what do you uh, view as ideal levels? Is it like closer to 30% or, you know, what's the sweet spot The goal
1: for, the, for the percent set? So when you divide-
0: Saturation insurance sorry. When true.
1: you divide serum iron- by total iron binding capacity. So TIBC, is a, it's a derivative of transferrin. So transferrin is the transport protein to carry iron, ideally back to the bone marrow, so it can be turned into new red blood cells. And so um, when you, the, the, the math that I've seen is that uh, transferrin level multiplied by 12 and a half Will get you to TIBC and it'll get you in the ballpark. So it's, it's a derivative of transferrin. And so serum iron divided by TIBC, somewhere between 20 to 30%, 25%. Oh, good thing
0: okay. so it should be below 30%. Yeah.
1: And yeah, absolutely. And, and in the articles I've read, the closer that percent saturation is to 20%, the lower your chance of ever getting cancer.
0: Wow.
1: Wow. The closer that percent saturation is to 60%, the greater your chance of getting cancer. And I think it's important for people to understand that what the, the, the hidden factor in cancer is iron, iron accumulation in the cancer cells. And yeah. that's a whole other conversation, obviously.
0: But well, that's interesting because even though I was committed to this a long time ago to optimizing my ferritin levels and literally my ferritin levels were still below 50, Mm -hmm. but I had stopped uh, donating the blood or removing it. And my percent transpiration saturation (laughs) creeped up to 50. And now it's down now to low thirties. So I still got a ways to go, but that's a big improvement in, in about six months.
1: Yeah, and, and I've, I've had many clients with cancer and the saturations you know up in the 60, 70. Uh, it's not, not unusual. I've got clients who are in the 80s and 90s who don't have, cancer, but they have you know they have genetic issues which you're very well familiar with. And so they work aggressively through um, the RCPN blood donations to stay on top of that and okay. get and it down into more they're down into the 30s and 40 percent, which is entirely different. and
0: and, and i I uh, always have one more item to have you comment on. but one of the things that annoys me is there's a fair number of people out there who believe that phytic acid or commonly called ip6 is a useful strategy to lower serum iron or not serum just total body iron might be better so i had miserable failures with that when i tried to use it clinically with my dad who had uh, who I, i also had to share the same thing thalassemia and he he was able to control it by finally figuring out that IP six doesn't work for squat until I got him into th- therapeutic phlebotomies. So what, what's been your experience with IP six?
1: You know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a straw when we need a fire hose. And that's really what a blood donation is. I've, I have clients who do derive benefit from um, IP six. Uh, using it uh, i've got a, a student uh, Karen Gattle in South Carolina who's developed a product called IDetox and it's a mixture of ip6 and quercetin and some other factors and it and it it does help people that there are certain people who are not uh, able to or want to donate blood which i, I don't totally you, you know but they just for whatever reason they can't do it yeah Products like that seem to well,
0: be- If you can't donate blood, you can always get a therapeutic phlebotomy. That's going to cost you something, but it doesn't mean you, you're you barred from the rest of your life of ever removing blood from your body. Don't get that confused. It's just- No, you're confused. right.
1: But, but yeah. small, like you said, small women who, who don't weigh enough, yeah. they're, that's a different uh, threshold that they've got to deal with. And again, if they're going to work with a, a, a mobile phlebotomist, they have much more leverage over that in terms of their ability to do it. It's just, there are some pretty strict rules now. And the, the threshold to donate blood now, it used to be 12, it's creeping up to 13. Wow. They're raising the bar now. And it's like, that, uh, that's post COVID. Well, that's a change post COVID. Okay.
0: All right, So the, but the other component of IP6 is that it's a not non-specific m- mineral chelator. So it's not just gonna target iron, it's gonna get your beneficial minerals too. That's true.
1: No, you're absolutely right. No. Yeah, so
0: that's why I don't like it.
1: Yeah, Let's be very careful.
0: Okay. All right. So let's get to the fun stuff. The copper and the retinol, which is the, the magic, uh, you know, the ideally it's not in our food supply for the most part. I mean, it's there, but it's radically reduced would be the far more accurate comment uh, down maybe 70, 80% from a few generations ago. So it's normally you would get it in your diet, but we're not getting anymore because of the depleted soils. So almost everyone seems to benefit from uh, iron and iron, copper augmentation. Well, so I, maybe-
1: And it's important for people to realize that um, it, it's hard to imagine uh, the changes that have taken place to the uh, food system, you know, I think we have a, kind of a vague understanding, but when you, let's, just, let's just focus on three issues. Yeah, the addition of iron, the addition of sugar, in the addition of seed oils, it's it takes your breath away. Terrible triad. It really is a terrible triad, and I, I think what is lost is that that triad has suppressive function around copper and retinol, and then you then you add the, to your point copper's not in the diet it's, it's you know it's it's missing from the soil and, and it's refined out of food things like that but then and people pride themselves on being of eating a low-fat diet i mean i, I get a kick out of when i'm in starbucks i hear these skinny lattes all the time We're <laughs> afraid of fat you know you you are very well aware of it but it's it's a concept that our ancestors lived the the um the chapter that you sent over to me, which was absolutely riveting. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Oh, yeah. the, uh, the chapter, just for those, just to interject, the chapter I sent you was one of the primary chapters of my new book. I'm writing it's on linoleic acid. It's, it took me about three months to write, and it's only about 20 pages, maybe the last 17 pages. Folks.
1: It's a block. I mean, I was just like, Oh my gosh. But the, to me, the, the most amazing uh, part of it is a table describing linoleic acid from seed oils down to, uh, beef tallow as I it's like oh my gosh that's it that's it's like they've totally flipped these animal fats into the seed oils but it's the linoleic acid I didn't know anything about that and it was such a revelation but you begin to couple as you say the terrible triad and it it, it just has this metabolic uh, suppression on the body that, that people are not even aware of and especially I would argue that the copper uh, just, just iron fortification alone has an impact on, on copper. And that's the work of um, Jamie Collins at University of Florida. Well, then you start to add in sugars. A lot of people have been studying that. You know, Robert Lustig is probably the most recent. And then we get to your insights about linoleic acid. It's like it's, it's absolutely arresting to think about how do people even survive that? I I really question our, our longevity in light of those
0: just those. well and, and if you integrate the new COVID jabs it's just like, <laughs> and, and just vaccines in general I mean when I started medical practice in 1985 it was one in ten thousand kids had autism one in ten thousand it's down to one in thirty now one in thirty in a generation so and you so that's the background at which you're introducing these new COVID jabs which are absolutely decimating fertility increasing uh, spontaneous abortions and de- increasing all-cause mortality. So it's just i, I shocking how resilient some humans can be. I would argue,
1: and it would take a, a few hours to kind of tease it out, but shorthand, I would argue that um, people who are copper deficient need vaccines. We'll just leave it at that.
0: Interesting, interesting supposition.
1: Yeah. And the, the other one, just to, just to throw in there, since we're talking about the terrible triad, my new phrase, and I don't know whether it's going to get traction or not, but I'm coming to the opinion that sugar is white iron.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just people don't realize how glucose metabolism influences iron metabolism, especially accumulation of iron. And it's it's absolutely staggering when you get into it. And it's I think it's important for people to just be aware that sugar isn't just bad. It's like it's really bad. And and I think the coupling with the linoleic acid is just it's out of control.
0: Well, let let, us the devil's in the detail. So I'm I'm not as convinced that sugar generically is bad because sugar is a carbohydrate as glucose, you know, that's which is the fundamental sugar. I should say sucrose. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Sucrose or refined processed foods. Exactly. So let me tell you my perception, and this is actually part of a larger book that I was going to write, but I essentially condensed because of some of the other issues to just that chapter you read. But the larger book had a bigger context in that. And I might have said in this chapter is that, that uh, when you are looking at the damages from sugar consumption. And most every physician believes that sugar is the most pernicious evil. They don't have any clue about seed oils, What they fail to understand is that almost all the studies that indicate the sugar from processed foods is causing this damage. They never looked at the fact that along with that sugar in the processed food are the seed oils and the seed oils far exceed the quantity of the sugar.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point.
0: So um, that is was- excluded from the analysis, and the, the, which which di- confounds it and, and doesn't tease out the damage from the seed oils versus the sugar. It's not just pure sugar, because right. sugar in the form of healthy carbohydrates, like fruit being the classic example, it, in moderate levels, especially metabolically flexible, is not an issue. Now, 90, having said that, 14 out of 15 people, according to the most recent analysis, which still only dates back to 2018, 14 out of 15 people, people are metabolically inflexible. So in other words, they can't seamlessly right. convert burning uh, uh, fat as their primary fuel to sugar. They just can't. Actually, it's the converse from sugar to fat. So, you know, they, then, that, then then a low carb diet may be of some benefit. But if you are metabolically flexible, you're one of the one in 15 people who are, then it's not an issue. And sugar is actually necessary for optimal health. There's no doubt in my mind. Of and course. and healthy sugar,
1: yeah, the, the nuance is glucose versus sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. They're they're three very different.
0: Yeah. Things. But even fructose, I mean, even oh, yeah. Lustig and uh, Richard Johnson, who was even preceded uh Robert uh in his in his concern about this issue, consent or concede to the fact that uh fructose in, in fruits is different than fructose is high fructose corn syrup. Right, uh, but- right.
1: No, it, again, it's it's the um, dose is the poison, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and the, the, the associated micronutrients too, right? Exactly. You know, which, which is, you know, you didn't mention it, but this is another important component. In fact, that so many people are confused on, which is vitamin C. Now, normally, vitamin C would be very useful, and I want you to explain the science of how why it's so important to build, to integrate copper into ceruloplasm. Uh, but here's the here's the here's the take, and you you wisely pointed out in your protocols, is that most everyone is confused between the difference between vitamin C and ascorbic acid, and they think they're the same. They're not. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting aside though, this woman that I was treating, she t- turned out she di- she did not need to be put on ascorbic acid, vitamin C, even whole food vitamin C, mm-hmm. because when you break it down, it turns into oxalates and she had a really high oxalate issue. So it turned out it wasn't really good for her, but but, but almost everyone else, they're gonna need vitamin C and they don't need ascorbic acid. It's actually gonna make things worse. They need whole food vitamin C. So help us understand why that's the case.
1: <laughs> um, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> it's right, fine. No, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably one of the, the great um, mysteries I find, I find it particularly fascinating that uh, Albert Szent-Györgyi, who, who gets the Nobel Prize for his work in biological combustion and the, allegedly the discovery of vitamin C, um, in July 4th, 1936, 18 months before he gets the Nobel, he clearly states in a letter to the, letter, the editor of Nature Journal, ascorbic acid is ineffective in curing scurvy. Well, that's a, that's a factual statement that, you know, we could...
0: Continue. From the inventor, the discoverer, rather. Not, uh, <laughs> he discovered yeah. it. Exactly. God invented it. So, so, the, the,
1: so the, the, there's, it. there's so much confusion around it. So we have ascorbic acid is uh, another n- name for it. It's called hexauronic acid, mm. six, six, six-sided. And then what he was particularly focused on was something called hyaluronic acid, which is involved in wound repair. Well, hexaronic, they sound the same, but a lot of confusion around that. And what the, the analogy that I use is when I'm talking about the whole food vitamin C complex, it's like a car has an engine, a steering wheel, four wheels, and a cover. And that's pretty much a car. Ascorbic acid is the cover of the car and no moving parts. And so it... it, it it is a, it is a component of the vitamin C complex, Mm -hmm. but in its isolation, it has different properties. And I I don't think people realize, and it's, this has been a raging debate since 1937. Uh, And it's a, it engenders a lot of passion that, that people don't realize or they don't believe. I'm not sure what the, what the right description is, but you know, Someone who I really respected uh, in terms of his uh, understanding of nutrition was Royal Lee, who started the standard process supplement line. Well, he openly was was very descriptive of the vitamin C molecule, he took pictures of it, chromatography, excuse me, uh, to show the difference in in how the uh, light was completely different in uh, the vitamin C molecule versus just ascorbic acid. A lot of controversy around it. And so what was was striking to me was to, to read uh, just this weekend. I was reading an article by uh, Wen and Wang. Uh, it, it's from um, May of 21. So it's a little old. I, I realize it's over a year old. But it's talking about how ascorbic acid chelates copper out of tyrosine. Well, I was like, wow, that's that's good to know. And, and ascorbic acid <clears throat> was identified by uh, Holmberg and Laurel, who were the, the, the physiologists from Sweden who discovered ceruloplasma. Ascorbic acid had similar properties to affect the structure and the copper composition of this critical copper protein. Well, it, it begins to... Beg the question: Well, why are we why are we having this dispute? Why why aren't we using a, a more whole food uh, structure? Why is there no whole food IV infusion available? Everything is ascorbic acid. I, I've asked, I've looked, I've had many practitioners try to do the same, and I, I find it fascinating that um, there just seems to be this. You know, what's uh, ascorbic acid? That's it, and. I think there's way more to the story and and what's important for people to realize is that when we talk about the engine of the whole food vitamin C molecule, that engine is an enzyme called tyrosinase. That's why when you read about ascorbic acid pulling the, the copper out of tyrosinase, that's significant because it's going to affect the vitamin C molecule. And, and then we, we realize, oh my gosh, it does the same thing to, the, that proton pump inhibitors do the exact same thing, pull the copper out of tyrosinase, and then we find out that what's one of the cornerstones of food processing? Tyrosinase inhibitors. And, and why are they focusing on uh, tyrosinase? Because any food that spoils, turns brown, like an apple, you slice an apple or you slice a banana or any food that... Uh, that sits out it's going to change color it's going to get darker well that's the tyrosinase action influencing the production of melanin and it's and so we've got this obsession in the food industry on shelf life and a near absence of understanding of what's it doing to human life because of and and what i was just having a, a conversation with some of my uh, alumni this morning, the more research-oriented group, about 12 or 13 of us. And I made some comment about how I was always fascinated by Paul Ehrlich, famed um, physician from Germany. Got I think it was 1905 Nobel Prize for um, mast cells. And when he was in medical school and um, he graduated in 1888, his fingers were either yellow red, blue, green, or purple. And the students would tease him about that. I, ma- I made comment of this. One of my students, um, she like, I need to send this article. And, and but Dr. McColl, it's absolutely amazing. It's an article about the reagents that are used to study the five complexes of the mitochondria. And what color are the reagents? Well, the reagent for complex one is red, Reagent for two is yellow. Reagent for three is blue. Reagent for four is green. And the reagent for complex five is purple. And it's like, uh-oh, suddenly these colors are very important. And, and why am I focusing on all this? Because all the colors from yellow to black are courtesy of melanin, which is made possible by tyrosinase. And so it's, I think it's equally fascinating that all the colors are patented by big pharma. It must have a lot of importance inside our body. But if the the mitochondrial electron transport chain is expressing different colors, that must be really important in terms of uh, electron flow, frequency, energy dynamics. And uh, I think the only thing that would be more confusing than understanding the physiology of fat is the physiology of light. And maybe you would agree with me on that but it's really important in terms of how our body does work we are energy and light beings and so i i i think what i have is more questions Mm -hmm. around the use of ascorbic acid i'm i'm curious and what um what I'm looking forward to, um, uh, our, our mutual friend uh, Robert Thompson has convinced me that it, it will be fun to go to the Vitamin C conference in uh, Clearwater in a couple. Are you months. going to be there? Yeah, I'm going. To, I'm
0: oh going my to... gosh, I speakers! I know. I have, I'm looking forward to that. I can't. But I'm going to meet you. I'll meet you again. That's great. That's oh my it. gosh, I got someone to hang out with. That's exactly. Be... And so, and so, oh, so, what a surprise!
1: No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because I, I, what I really, I'm going down there to learn to understand i want i really want to try to pull the curtain back and try to understand what's the focus and the clinical objective and and are there nuances to this
0: no i don't think there are i mean my I, i'm just going there to help them understand a little bit because i don't they they allowed me to be a keynote they're not allowing robert to be a keynote <laughs> he doesn't have he doesn't have a platform so i'm going to definitely cuz everyone there is is confused, but be, before I talk, go on further. I just want to mention that Paul Ehrlich, he, and I suspect one of the reasons his fingers is blue because he's the guy that published in 1890 that methylene blue yes. actually works to cure malaria. Which magic is, bullet, wow,
1: wow. magic bullet, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So anyway, but with respect to the, the differentiation between ascorbic acid, is this group that's going to be speaking? Uh, uh, I think it's the, actually it's, it's the birth, my mother's birthday, so I think it's September 9th and 10th. Yeah. Um, the, um, their focus is on ascorbic acid. And I, what, one of my slides is gonna present this. It's my view, and I think I made this term up, that ascorbic acid is a pharmacomimetic. <laughs> so okay. yeah. it's actually obviously a natural molecule, yes. but it's serving as a drug-like product exactly. in high doses. And I have, we actually sell that, we sell ascorbic right. acid, but I do not, do not, do not, do not right. recommend it for daily use. You should be, it's going to cause the complications you just mentioned. It's going to mess with tyrosinase and it's going to make things worse. It's going to make your copper worse. So you want whole food vitamin C, which actually we're going to come up with a product in that really soon it's based on acerola Mm -hmm. berries and, and, uh, Amla, I think that's great. But you know, in person, so I, I do not take ascorbic acid unless I'm really sick, you know. So then I would take high doses because it's a pharmacomimetic and you can't really go those high doses. With I think what people don't
1: realize is that when you take that that chemical, that ascorbic acid, out of its complex, yeah. it has different properties. And people are always trying to say, well, well, why why is ascorbic acid silenced in the complex, and it seems to act out away? Like, imagine there are thousands of, of chemicals that, depending upon what the um, so the uh, field is will dictate how they're going to react. And so I, I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding. It, it goes all the way back to July, 1936. You find out that actually ascorbic acid is ineffective. That's the word that, that Sven Gorgi uses. It's ineffective at curing scurvy. Yeah.
0: Well, that, I mean, That's me- not one of my slides too, because I think most of the people at this event do not know that. No. They fully believe it treats scurvy and it's exactly. not, it doesn't.
1: And again, it, it was, he was using Hungarian peppers, you know, which have, they're very rich in vitamin C, complex, and I, somehow that, that significant difference has been diffused and played down for, you know, some 90 years now. It's, it's definitely amazing to me. So.
0: All right, so well, definitely, I'm thrilled,
1: I'm thrilled that you're going to be be uh, giving the uh, the audience a, a dose of reality.
0: Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe I was a carrot at the end of the thing, but they've got me at the absolute last speaker, of it, <laughs> of the last one. So I said, oh "That's a fine, you know, yeah. no problem." But uh, I'm I'm going to say can't see if I can't get you into the uh, speaker. You no, know, you're not. I'm going to try to twist your arm to get you in on, on Thursday before the event that night. Is it okay. no, no Friday? Friday before the I think it's Saturday, Sunday. I think, uh, I think so it's Friday, it's, Saturday. Friday, Friday,
1: Saturday. So it would be Thursday.
0: Thursday. Yeah, Thursday night. I'm going to see if I can get you in there. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to twist her arm, Lior. Because <laughs> you, well. need, you need to be there because you need to connect with these guys. Paul yeah. Merrick would be there, Pierre Corey, Richard Fleming, and and uh, some other good people. Yeah. Nathan Goodrich was a guy I interviewed too. So, uh, anyway, so that's ideally, assuming you're not having a high oxalate diet, most people don't, but some do, uh, then you're going to want to take vitamin, uh, whole food vitamin C on a regular basis. And how much, what doses wise, what do you, what are you recommending? 200 milligrams? Yeah.
1: Well, actually, you know, great, great question depends on, on what the individual is dealing with, but, um, the um, a good dosing would be four to five hundred milligrams. I might I might double that. There have been situations where someone who is dealing with a, an acute situation I might triple it. But you've got to do it in divided doses so they don't overwhelm their system. But uh, the thing is, the RDA as you know for um, whole food C is sixty milligrams, and the RDA for ascorbic acid is a thousand milligrams. Well, when you start talking about you know, 800 or a thousand milligrams of whole food vitamin C, you're really um, shifting physiology. And again, you gotta think about that tyrosinase enzyme being the core. And that, I think think tyrosinase as an enzyme, um, maybe second only to ceruloplasmin, but tyrosinase as an enzyme is, I think it's wildly misunderstood. And I think there's a connection between tyrosinase and ATP7A, critical copper pump, just as there is a relationship between ceruloplasmin and ATP7B, and I, I think there's there needs to be more understanding and research around that. That I think tyrosinase, by virtue of its color-producing properties, has been under attack for a long time by by virtue of the emphasis on ascorbic acid. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. So g- guess how much. Vitamin C I take a day. Oh, my gosh. Whole food. <laughs> Whole food? Yeah. Uh, um, a thousand? Very close. About 4,000. Uh, but you know how I've taken it? One pint of usually freshly picked acerola cherries.
1: Yeah, that's right. You've mentioned that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, each that's cherry amazing. has 80 milligrams. So that's unfair. That is I, just- I split it up twice, a you know, half of the pint in the morning, half of the pint in the afternoon. And do you... Are you going to sell
1: that? Because I would buy that.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, fortunately, I, who, who wouldn't? You know, I got two giant 15-foot uh, Barbados cherry trees, which produce them. And and it's, they kind of alternate. They pulse. So like, you know, yep. half the time one's producing, half the time there. But they produce literally from, I think, late April, early May, up until November, sometime in November. So six months out of the year, I'm getting cherries, fresh cherries. Everywhere.
1: Oh. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just like unbelievable. I feel so fortunate, but for those people who live in subtropical climates, it's called a Barbados cherry yeah. and most of the nurseries in your area will have them. And boy, you couldn't make a better investment, uh, you know, really you get get as mature a tree as you can afford and you can start harvesting things in yourself. Oh. Do they require much attending? No, no, no. The only, t- the major tending is to go out and harvest them. <laughs> 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 thing about tr- fruit trees is that it's, it's almost no maintenance it's like germ- maybe you got to prune a little bit but that's it wow as opposed to gardening which can be very high i maintenance, so, a lot of work in gardening
1: well I what i want you to know that um when i when i knew that you were a keynote i wasn't sure what the focus was but um I think my blood pressure has probably dropped 20 points knowing your stance on this. It's very, very comforting to know that that there are some um, significantly important players like yourself who do understand this. And mm-hmm. it's just, I think it's, to me, it, it, it became one of the points of, of irrational debate over the last couple of years. It's like, you, it was hard okay. to even have a civil conversation about it. And I, I, I just find that troubling that if, if something is that um, polarizing, there's gotta be more to the story. And people don't seem to appreciate that. Once it becomes an electric issue, it's like, wait a minute, let's back up and let's talk about it. Because it's it's so important to our physiology.
0: Yeah, because if the person who's putting this conference on, I mean, she basically sells most of the vitamin C that's used in IV infusions. Okay. So she is, she is totally conflicted and doesn't right. appreciate this perspective at all. So I'm I'm the I was able, I was actually. I met, I met her in uh, like in June, and the the conference the, the panels were full, but she pulled she changed things so to allow me to come, come in and speak. But you know, I I because I, I want I because I wanted to give this point, you know, make this point because people need to hear it and they need to understand it. And I did did explain it when the other guy that her one of her scientific advisors is Nathan uh, Goodrich, I think Nathan, Nathan Goodrich, I think is his name, mm-hmm. really good clinician out of Arizona and under really smart guy, understands the stuff, but. You know, so we came to an agreement too. I mean, that you know, he you know, just what I shared earlier that it's you know, in high because he he uses in some patients 100, 200, 300 grams in one day in one day. I can't I mean, imagine to treat cancer. You know, so the, you you know, it's just huge, and it's a, it's heroic measure for sure. But you know, it's going to be a lot safer than than chemo. Oh oh yeah
1: again you're you're flooding the body with hydrogen peroxide at that point, yeah that's going to overwhelm the
0: care. So when you use those high doses, do you think it's because of the impact on tyrosinase do you is there any therapeutic intervention you would add to that, like taking the extra copper
1: well I would i mean and that's really where where i'm going to be focusing my energies going forward I, I feel really good about um the book i feel good about the protocol i'm excited about our book i'm I'm really good feel good about the training that we've got but to me the the missing piece of the puzzle is and i'd I'd love to explore it with you um directly and and others that you think would be influential i think we need a a more accelerated process of de-ironing and recoppering the body Mm -hmm.
0: that's what these well how can you how could you speed it up more more, taking than than, uh taking out six or seven units a year. I mean, how much can the, you do it?
1: No, 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 no. I think that's a fair question. We've got, their iron chelators, but they don't come without issue.
0: Oh, gosh. I, you
1: know, is, is copper something that can be infused? If we've been infusing iron for, what, a century or more, isn't there some way to infuse copper? And if so,
0: what... What a are good them? question. I would be nervous about that, but it, it may be a good idea. I don't even know that they make parental copper. They probably do. Just they obsessed.
1: do. It's usually it's usually built around uh, copper chloride. Uh, oh, you yeah. might find some with copper sulfate. But, but again, so those are copper salts. Are there other forms? Is, is copper bisglycinate? Does it lend itself to infusion? I don't know.
0: And that's your favorite form currently, right? That's yeah. the one we use in our products too, is copper bisglycinate.
1: And you know, I was talking We're about just, like,
0: so It sounds Fancy, but it's biz means is is another word for two, so it's two glycines attached to the copper.
1: And I was talking with an executive at, at Albion about it, and I didn't know this, and maybe you do. And forgive me if you, if you already do. But so when you're when you're talking about copper chloride or copper sulfate, it, copper's you know in a plus two form, just the way it's designed. And copper bisglycinate, you would assume, okay, so that's that copper two thing again. Actually, what he was explaining to me is that the glycine molecule, and there's two of them, as you noted, it, it neutralizes copper. So it's actually coming into the body as copper zero.
0: Oh, it's even better. It's, it's yeah, right. Yeah, because it's going to get into the cells because if it doesn't have a charge it's more likely to penetrate the cell membrane with a charge is what kind of like repels, exactly. repel yeah so it's just so i think that's intriguing it's well, like, i did not know that that's
1: yeah so it's it's it, are there opportunities that have not been explored i, I mean i'm i'm game to try your uh, roller cherry uh, juice that would be a
0: i well it's not a juice i mean they do well they do roller cherry powder and then in, in the winter when my cherries are not trees are not producing yeah. or shrubs actually uh, then I have that, that powder. Or actually, uh, by that time, I should have my, my, my whole food powder, vitamin C, which is That's exciting. a lot easier, yeah.
1: Well, I think, I think the body, we need to find innovative ways of bringing copper back to some physiological norm. And I think it, with the, the challenge is, and you're, you're very sensitive to it, is we have this disproportionate um, accumulation of iron. Well, again, go back to when we were born. The download for mom is seventy milligrams of copper, four fifty milligrams of iron. Well, that's about a six to one ratio. That's a, so, what would it take to get back to that? What do we have to do to download the iron, and what do we have to do to try to reinfuse the copper? Th- that, to me, is the great unknown, and that's really where I want to focus my energies, is working with clinicians to do that.
0: Uh, that should—that's an admirable endeavor, for sure. So what we didn't, we mentioned briefly, but certainly didn't discuss the details and specifics was retinol and retinol, of course, for the most, everyone understands is vitamin A. What is retinol is not in any way, shape or form is beta carotene. They are two different distinct molecules, right. not to be confused. Although many, if not most nutrition labels get away with this criminal uh, sin, mortal sin of putting on their label beta carotene conflated with vitamin a and or it's really you know that is such a common mistake you see it time and time again
1: and the other mistake is saying that retinyl palmitate is the same thing oh,
0: thank you for expanding on that era mm-hmm. of tragedies tragedy of errors rather so uh, important. what's important yeah, for people to understand can add both of those because it's a really key key issue yeah
1: well what what's important for people to understand is that there's something called retinol equivalency units, REUs. And, and retinol, you get into the weeds, it's actually an alcohol. You know, it's, well, it's a fat, but it's actually an alcohol. And uh, the biochemists out there understand what we're about to say. But the, the important thing is... What the OL means. Alcohol. <laughs> what the OL means. But the, but the important thing is, it takes 12 beta carotene to have the equivalency of impact of one retinol and that's a very important uh, understanding and it's not not well understood and it's mis- mislabeled on all sorts of uh, supplement bottles but also to your point about the um, the retinol palmitate I, I was talking with a with a uh, colleague in germany young young man and he developed what's called um, vitamin A toxicity and I said, well, I'm really interested to know what happened. Well, this is all because of COVID. He he started taking what? High doses of ascorbic acid. <laughs> and and he took very high doses of retinyl palmitate. And as we got into the weeds of his symptoms, and I and he had done the blood work, and so I could see his, his copper was in the 70s, mm-hmm. and his ceruloplasm
0: serum
1: copper. Serum serum copper, was, was in the 70s, 75, I think. And his uh, serum ceruloplasm was 15, oh, which is 50% of what it should be. Man. And so as we got into it, what really stood out, and I think this is very important for people to understand this, the symptoms of what's called vitamin A toxicity, mm-hmm. it's signs of iron toxicity in the liver. And it's a Gosh,
0: complex. that's radical! Who would have known?
1: Completely misunderstood. And so, what's what's really significant is when we have vitamin A in our diet, like cod liver oil or beef liver, or whatever whatever the source might be, you know, free range eggs. The, the retinol gets turned into retin- retinol palmitate, and it gets stored in the liver in what are called stellate cells. They actually are the shape of stars, and but in order to work with that, it needs to be turned back into retinol so it can be transported on uh, the, the transthyretin protein. And, and what's there? There's T4 and retinol. That's what TTR is. Transthyretin protein is carrying those two metabolites. And, and if the retinol is not there, TTR without retinol is not, a, is not your friend. It's very, um, you talk about the terrible triad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another, another component of, of destruction. But the thing is that conversion from retinyl palmitate back to retinol, I haven't found it yet, but I will. I'm convinced it's a copper dependent trans- mm-hmm. transaction mm-hmm. to get it back into a usable form for transport and then subsequent use in the tissue and this is completely unknown and not discussed in um, iron circles retinol vitamin a circles no, no one's talking about this in, in, in immense conversion back and forth and when people are taking high high doses of retinol palmitate which is synthetic and you couple that with a copper deficient liver, you are going to have an explosion. And that's what I think the so-called vitamin A toxicity, it's um, again, low copper is going to increase iron in the liver. And that's what I think we're witnessing. It's a very significant event.
0: Yeah. So as as long as as you just mentioned it, I think it would be wise to uh, educate our viewers as to what the, I that those two, copper tests, the serum copper and ceruloplasm, what the ratio is, because there's an ideal ratio you're shooting for, which I think is 3.33. So, and and that's, I think, is it the ceruloplasmin divided by the copper? Uh, Copper divided by ceruloplasmin. Copper copper divided by ceruloplasmin. And so ideal copper
1: should be about a hundred. And this, this is based on research from the 1930s. I I tend to trust that more than the contemporary research uh, before the advent of all the insanity. But... um,
0: Or the perversion of the food supply.
1: Exactly. That's right. Um, So uh, serum copper, about 100. And ceruloplasmin should be 30. And again, this is some uh, scintillating research out of of all places, Bell Labs in in upstate New York. Um, But it was human human, uh, research. uh, But it should be 30. And so, hundred divided by thirty is three point three three. What's What's fascinating is that ratio should hold, depending upon how much copper there is in the body. Mm-hmm. Where it, Where it becomes really significant is if the ratio starts to rise, or fall then you know you have physiology, some kind of pathophysiology taking place. When you have this elevation that's getting up into the fours and fives between copper and ceruloplasm, you very likely have some kind of inflammatory event or, or an infection of some sort. When it starts to drop precipitously, what you really have is it's a clear sign that there isn't adequate copper in the diet to fuel the, um, the function of ceruloplasm protein. And that, that in and of itself is a, is a significant finding. And
0: yeah, fortunately, those two tests, syrup, copper, and ceruloplasm are available pretty much in any commercial lab. They're really easy to get and not terribly expensive. Right. So um, really powerful stuff. So can you help us understand the different forms of, or how we would get more retinol in our diet, which is ideally it should come from food. Right. And I'm particularly interested in your Viewpoints on some of the more obscure but uh, apparently still significant sources, which would be butter or ghee. Obviously, grass-fed organic would be ideal, right. And uh, egg yolks. Yeah. So
1: the, the the five classic forms, and again, this is well chronicled in uh, Weston A. Price circles. Um, you know, grass-fed butter, very important source. Um, heavy cream, again, grass-fed heavy cream. Um, the uh oil um uh, used for centuries as a source of, of retinol uh, again grass-fed liver and then of course what, what we call free-range eggs e- eggs should not be eating an organic diet they should be out with the bugs and the grass in the sun eating their it's a i would call it a natural diet uh, organic corn and organic soybean is not what the what the chicken was designed to to eat um, Chickens are actually baby dinosaurs. But the thing is, uh, they do produce a very retinal-rich yolk. And the the closer the yolk is to orange, the more retinol, uh, you know, the more it's going to be giving us the, the life-enhancing
0: uh, that's actually retinol, that's not beta carotene.
1: Yeah. And, and the thing is, the, the more yellow it is, the less nutrient organic. So yellow, yellow eggs versus orange eggs we want the orange that's really what we're looking for and again who's making all these colors
0: it's (laughs) but the, the challenge with this though is there's a high linoleic acid level relatively high i mean even if you're having four eggs you're still getting about two to three grams of linoleic acid because almost all the eggs this is including the eggs that are say organic free range free pasture not pasteurized pastured eggs Uh, 99% of the chickens are fed organically are fed high grains and the grains are loaded with linoleic acid. Right. It is, it, it, you almost have to feed the chickens yourself if you're going to get, and that's what I do. I don't give them any, my, my chickens have 80% less linoleic acid than regular eggs, but, but they still have the, even if they're fed organic grain, they're still going to have the retinol.
1: Well, you're not going to take my eggs away from me, are you?
0: I'll just encourage you to get your own chickens and feed them the right way.
1: Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a very strong argument.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the ideal, you know, I mean, my, 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 my little chickens produce about a dozen eggs a day. So I'll bring you some. That be that would be amazing. I would love that. Yeah, I'll bring you some of my eggs, and, and if I, I'm, I'm hopefully we'll bring some macerol cherries too. I was going to say you're going to bring one of the trees, right? Not the trees, but the, of the harvest of the trees. Sure.
1: <laughs> the harvest of the trees. <laughs> no, you
0: know, the,
1: I think it's the hard part of this conversation is that basically what we're concluding is we do have to grow our own food now.
0: Well, it's ideal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's there's so many so many um, switchbacks. In the food processing industry now, it's like, and again, that's hard. You know, I'm a, I'm an urban cowboy. I didn't I didn't grow up on a farm, you know. My wife Dr. Liz, she loves, you know, she grew up on a 800 acre farm. She knows what this is all about. Big, big, big. But it's it's like, where where are you going to find that kind of acreage? Where are you going to find where? Who has the time?
0: You don't need 800 acres. That's true. Sure.
1: Of course, but but who has the time to work the land, but but have the impact in society? That's the issue, right? Yeah, that's the challenge. So,
0: but but, you know, the thing—the easy thing—is to have fruit trees. Yes, because you do have the time. You, uh, the only time investment is really to go out there and harvest the fruit. So, you know, that would be the key thing. And chickens are pretty—they're
1: pretty low tech.
0: Yeah, and I like it because you know this whole thing with the Great Reset that appears to be imminent, and you know, food shortages and supply commodity or supply chain challenges. So it's going to make food access somewhat challenging. So it'd be a really good resource to have to have enough food for your chickens and to be able to produce the eggs. And that's a really good bar- not tool for yourself, but also to barter for anything you might need in the great reset that's coming. It's true.
1: That's very true. Absolutely. But, I mean, these are, we're, we're going into uncharted waters. We don't really know what the...
0: Uh, oh, gosh, yes. Who knows what's coming down the road <laughs> compared to what we had the last two years.
1: And the, and the significance of that is that when we, when we have this uncertainty, we have stress. So what stress is going to do? It's going to burn through minerals. And who's going to take it on the chin? Magnesium and copper. And I, what I think is amazing about your, your routine of taking out micro doses of iron and you're putting back in significant amounts of, of magnesium chloride, that's genius because you're able to metabolize stress in a completely different way when your your magnesium level is where it's supposed to be. And your iron isn't running on overdrive because that's when people get anxious. That's when they get hyperbolic. They they go into hypoxia. It's like all of this, um, these reactions that I think started a couple of years ago are directly a result of an emotion called fear and fear just drives iron uh, into our tissue. So it's absolutely amazing what it does.
0: Yeah. yeah, so I was thinking about uh, the amount of iron I'm removing every week, which is 60 cc's, which is about 25 milligrams of iron. Yeah. So every week I'm pushing back the clock one month, <laughs> right? Because normally you're going to accumulate 25 milligrams, or so about 25,
1: 25, 30. And I think your, your goal was to live, what, 130?
0: 30 is rational. You know, it may be extend beyond that. Uh, but right now, the technology does not ex- exist to go to 130. I think it's beginning to emerge. Yep. But who knows? I mean, 30 years, that, that's a lot of technology, technological advance unless they, they great reset us back to the Stone Age, which is a possibility. Who knows? <laughs>
1: um, and then, and, you know. do I, I wonder, do the med beds work without electricity? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could, I don't know that the technology to generate electricity will disappear. That would have to be a pretty... Yeah, Bad reset, uh, but who knows? You know, and I think it's going to their, their, their intent. Their implementation is going to have some pretty significant unintended consequences that yeah. they have no idea what's going to happen. They could be pretty, pretty severe.
1: And while we're talking about retinol and we're talking about energy, it's probably important for people to know. And this is a, a very nuanced uh, subject that was um, profiled by Dr. Hammerling. Hammer Ling, uh, 2016, where he's talking about retinol as a key component of the movement of electrons from complex three to complex four. And the electron actually rides the back of the retinol uh, structure. And it's like that alone is mind-blowing to think about, that if retinol is not in our diet, then it's not in our electron transport chain, then it's not able to support the optimal generation of energy. That, 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 to think of, of retinol in a sense of, as a um, energy focused nutrient, it's, it's very unusual because most of it's around immune system or vision.
0: But it's so important, as you mentioned, is for ceruloplasmin. Oh, so absolutely. Without it, you're not really going to make it and you're, that ratio is going to be all distorted. So, uh, so okay. and, and isn't ceruloplasmin like one of the biggest proteins in your body? I thought it was.
1: Yeah, 1,066 amino acids.
0: That's huge. There,
1: there are a couple that are bigger, but it is it is a beast. I think what makes it unique is in its original format, uh, back in the 40s, uh, it had eight copper atoms and it was that way for 30 years. And then suddenly it had seven and then it was that way for another 30 years. And now the current ceruloplasm protein has six copper atoms, and my question to
0: any- no, co- is, is, Are these what they think it has or this is documented objective reality? That, documented, absolutely. Doc- really? And, so it's decreased by two copper atoms? It was documented in- 40 Holy years. moly. That's so, shocking.
1: Yeah. And, and no, no contemporary copper uh, researcher can explain to me what happened. Gosh. So think of, think of a car that's a V8 and you take two cylinders out. So it's a V6 analogy. Well, V6, it's still a good car. Yeah. doesn't have the same power.
0: It's say turbocharged.
1: Right, <laughs> so, so the yeah, right. So the thing is um, we're pretty much running on V6 uh, plasma, and that's a different beast than our ancestors. And, and it's like, it's hard to imagine the difference but it's hard to imagine how did they create the difference uh, it's a, it's a great unknown.
0: Wow. wow. So, I mean, that's the key. Um, and a big part of, I mean, what you've just described o- over the, this entire interview is, is something that, I don't know, what's your best guess? My guess is less than 5% of the clinicians understand, it, maybe even less than 1%. I
1: I'd put it closer so you, to 1
0: to 2%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely. So it's under 5%, but you know, it's, it's even more extreme. Right. Probably there are, are less physicians that are metabolically, no, maybe less physicians, more physicians are metabolically fit than understand this. <laughs> right. 14 out of 15, as opposed to like 17 out of 18.
1: And you know, one of the, um, one of the issues that we've not had a chance to talk about was we're, we put a lot of emphasis on mitochondria. Well, and I know you, you are well-versed in the microbiome, but there's, there's clearly a relationship between the microbiome and micro, mitochondria, because it's all bacteria. And the thing is, I think more emphasis needs to be placed on the, the microbiome and how we can support that. Uh, and there are, there are products that are emerging that are, I think, uh, gonna be very important, particularly ones that are able to produce mannose as a, as a byproduct of their, of their uh, design. And I think it's, it's an area that, when you think about like neurodegeneration, it's actually the, the breakdown of the microbiome that then rides up the um, um uh vagal nerve. And the vagal nerve is is supposed to be monitoring metabolic balance before it gets to the brain. And and I think I think there's been some significant alteration of the metabolic balance of the vagal nerve, which is affecting uh brain function now. And it's it's really um it's a it's a very uh, new area of research yeah. now, but I think it's critically important because it's probably the fastest growing breakdown in humans right now is is neurodegeneration.
0: At the two points that that really get highlighted for me when I think about those would be uh, simple interventions uh, that are vastly ignored. The most important is exercise. Absolutely, it, it yeah. is, that is the single most important therapeutic intervention to limit or prevent the advent of neurodegenerative disorders. Just, and not, not hardly anyone understands this. Right. And you, got, you need aggressive exercise. in addition to that, ideally after the exercise, you hop into the sauna because the sauna generates heat, a significant sauna. You know, if it's hot enough and you get your temperature up to at least 102, maybe 103, all right. For 20 minutes, you're going to generate heat shock proteins. And what does the heat shock protein do? It refolds these proteins. Now, admittedly, those proteins may have been misfolded because of microbiome disruption. But nevertheless, the heat shock proteins will help refold them to the way they're supposed to be. And if they are unable to do that, they tag that protein for elimination. You know, typically the uh, beta amyloids and the tau proteins, they get misfolded in the brain. Well, I have,
1: I've waited... Uh, almost 12 years to find out what heat shock proteins really do. So thank you.
0: We didn't know that? Yeah. No, I didn't. Right? So everyone tells you about heat shock proteins. Yeah, there's and it's not just one. There's there's dozens of. Oh them. my gosh! Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, was- but that's their primary function, and it's really, really important. And you know, a lot, a lot of biohackers think about cold thermogenesis and dumping right. in the pool. Right. But. I mean, yeah, sure you get some benefits, maybe increasing your dopamine, but it pales in comparison to the benefit of, of sauna therapy, That's which true. is well documented. And there I can talk about sauna therapy for hours. But the but the big benefit is, you know, is to get up and, and you don't do it every day. I do it ideally, it's like every other day is an ideal dose, like yes. three, three and a half times a week. Like, but my schedule is such that I can only do it three days a week. But if because I have certain things that I can't combine sauna with. Well, sure. But it's a powerful intervention. It'll also help you detox. And if you integrate it with the right type of light therapy, you can actually do something called photobiomodulation, which is another intervention to prevent neurodegeneration. because the near-infrared light, not far-infrared, near-infrared penetrates the skull really easily.
1: And the reason why the near-infrared is so important is that complex four is blue. It absorbs red light. The red light allows for the the completion of the uh, function in the the complex, but it stops the impact that nitric oxide has to disrupt the function of complex four. So red light and complex-
0: All right, so I I couldn't agree uh, more, but but I'm gonna drop another uh, (laughs) piece of information that you probably didn't know because you've been so darn busy researching this, but the near near infrared light also does one other magnificent thing that was only discovered about two years ago, Okay. And hardly anyone knows. I suspect you missed it because because of your focus, but it actually goes into the mitochondria, yeah. and it causes it to generate melatonin. Ninety five percent of the melatonin produced in your body is produced in the mitochondria. Only five percent of the pineal gland. Yeah, no, I knew I knew that. But there's... okay, then as you, you were way ahead of the curve, I, I thought you might have missed it. Because... No, 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 no. Doctor
1: Reiser's a genius. I, but I don't think I understood. That the red light was critical for melatonin uh, production—that that's uh, earth-shattering, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, it just makes—and melatonin in the electron transport chain is exactly where you need it because these hydroxyl radicals, you know, they only live for a billionth of a second, right? And that means they can't travel very far, so you can't be making an antioxidant in the cytoplasm and expect it to have a damn bit of difference in the mitochondria. That's exactly right. Mm. No, no, the, the
1: the the big issues are. Um, ferrooxidase in the blood, glutathione in the cell, and melatonin in the mitochondria.
0: Those, those and, are your... and melatonin catalyzes the up and upregulates the production of glutathione. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like crazy good. <laughs> no, it's it, And again, there's a a copper dynamic. Oh no, what's the copper connection? I missed this one.
1: Well, um, glutathione, uh, uh, the the greater the greeter in the cell um, for copper is glutathione. But Ladies. there's there's two metabolic steps to make. In the cytoplasm? Mm-hmm. And, and there's two metabolic steps to make um, glutathione. And you're, you're involving cysteine molecules. Well, cysteine and copper have a very tight relationship. You've got to have energy. can't make oh. glutathione without oh. energy. And melatonin is... Um, you're you're relying on a copper-dependent enzyme to flip serotonin into melatonin. And so it's a a beast of a... The the melatonin molecule is amazing in terms of its strength and impact. And again, the fact that it's being made inside the mitochondria, which is copper-rich, I think is very, very
0: significant. So I did not know about that connection. That's great. Another reason to make sure your copper is up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we're talking about copper doses, usually it's a few milligrams. And we, there are others out there who are in this field who are not as well researched and studied as you who are promoting much higher doses, like even 100 milligrams of copper a day, right. which you and I both disagree with. So, why yeah. don't you talk about doses? Well, I, yeah.
1: Again, when you get into the research, they're, they're typically working with maybe t- for recovery purposes. Three or four milligrams and the upper tolerable limit is identified as 10 at nih again i think the um the folks who are going higher doses in large part they're using a lot of transdermal uh, application and again the, the point that i
0: swallowing I've, copper sulfate <laughs>
1: right and swallowing some the point that i've made to to uh the, the principles in that whole movement is let's start measuring your excretion of copper start telling us how much is coming out the back end the the urine and the feces, because I don't think we have a real full understanding of what's happening to all that copper in your body. I would argue that you're taking a lot in, it's coming out the backside. But but absent the proof, we we can't really uh, make a decision. But I think that the body is clearly responding to increased dosing. Back in the 30s and 40s, when they had um, notable studies to look at what's the upper limit, the most they would ever work with was 10 milligrams. Uh, there's a, a fascinating case study that took place in Canada. Um, a patient came in who couldn't walk. He was, he was uh, apparently an alcoholic. And for some miracle, one of the residents said, maybe we should test his copper status." and it, it was in the teens it was absolutely the lowest they'd ever seen soroloplasm was single digits believe it or not oh but he did but he didn't have wilson's disease and then the, the genius of this team these two residents that that uh, saved this guy's life <clears throat> their their drug of choice was hot cocoa
0: <laughs> which is loaded with copper
1: <laughs> and in three days he was walking
0: again Wow,
1: wow. So it's again the the amazing resilience of the body. But again, that was 100 100 milligrams of of hot cocoa, but it was high doses of of, uh, hot cocoa brought him back.
0: So, you know, the reason I mentioned that is that you prevent a very compelling story to make sure you get enough copper. And there's a lot of people out there think it's a little as good, more is going to be better. And I'm not opposed to rescue doses in in some very specific situations, but there doesn't appear to be any, any, any justification to go much over 10 milligrams. I mean, I've gone, this this one I'm treating, I got up to 12 milligrams, but that's just going to be a short, short term. Well, yeah, and not, not long term, and it's a copper bisphenol which is no,
1: it's a great it's a great product. Yeah. And so, I think it's important that people realize. I think the the big um, unknown is that the copper is even a factor in our health. And I, and I appreciate all that you're doing to try to make people aware of it. It gets it gets over um, shadowed by the focus on iron, as we've discussed. But, but people need to realize that part of the challenge we face now is the food system is not designed to supply copper and it's missing in the soil and it's missing in the foods and it's missing in the animals so we're really at a point where we almost are bound to take it in supplemental forms and, and so the the copper product that I've got works with the same copper bisglycinate and it, it's you know complex with desiccated liver and some um, spirulina which i think are important components but the key is copper seems to be well received in when it's mixed with food and yeah. that's the key people need to understand that and it's it's particularly um dependent on fat in the diet it's it's a fat soluble mineral people need to understand that and
0: that take it with food take it with food and the back has fat in the meal right. not just an apple
1: and and fat metabolism runs off of copper dependent beta oxidation enzymes. So it's, they have this very close relationship with each other that um, not a lot of people know about. And so it's just, it's a blind spot that, that is a very common issue in society.
0: So just to highlight this, most people would benefit from copper supplements, supplementation, but along the lines of the encouragement for people to ha- create their own food, especially Fruit trees, which are relatively low maintenance, uh, you can add copper to the plants. Yes. So That's right. That's right. copper sulfate is usually what you can buy. It's inexpensive, available, just about anywhere, and you know it's only going to cost you a few dollars a year. To, to typically, the best way is a foliar spray to spray it on the leaves and the underside of the leaves. And you can do that a few times a year. And I spray my acerola cherry trees a few times a year and my blueberries and mm-hmm. my avocados and, you know, everything else. So they're all copper supplements. So guess how much copper I take as a supplement? How many uh, milligrams?
1: I'm going to guess around six milligrams.
0: Nope. nope. Zero. I do not take copper supplements. Ooh, wow. Okay. I don't, I don't need
1: it. Well, you know, no, with, with the infusion of, of the vitamin C that you're getting, you probably don't.
0: That's because it's in I got I'm taking like right. two to four grams of the whole food vitamin C in my which has been sprayed with copper sulfate. Right.
1: Well, and again, you want to make sure that the soil is getting that copper sulfate too.
0: That's right. But, what... but it but it will it, the the best application is through the leaves. You know, that's my understanding. Okay. But, yeah, so you're going to really foliar application. You can put it into the soil. There's a lot of dependencies on the soil, but you'll get it into the plant, if you put it in the leaves. You got to be careful with the time, You don't want to put it on; it's really hot because the, yeah, but yeah. not too cold because the leaf, the pores have to be open. It gets too hot, the the pores close because they don't want to lose water. So there's a timing issue too. But if you're if you're familiar with foliar application, you just want yeah. to add some copper sulfate.
1: Yeah, and no, I've read that that the microbes are really, um, they really look forward to getting the copper in the soil.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's no question. You can use them both. You can use them both.
1: Yeah, that's right. No so, copper at no. all. That's that's well. That, it makes sense in light of your dietary focus. That makes perfect yeah, sense.
0: and I don't take any vitamin A. I just get I get all mine from my food. No, I don't take any vitamin A. Most people are going to benefit from some vitamin A, but I I take so much butter. I have like four, not ghee. I have ghee like right. four ounces of ghee a day. No uh,
1: cod liver oil for you. That's amazing.
0: No cod liver. I don't need it. Okay. I don't need it. No. That's awesome. that's no. that, that's, a, that's actually very exciting. Yeah. So you can do it. You know, the goal is to get to that point. You got to be kind of OCD and obsessive compulsive, but you don't ideally should get it from the food, food, but our food supply is so perverted and bastardized that it's not there and you have to really grow your own for the most part or attain it from someone who's doing these techniques so that you can get it through your food.
1: Yeah. And and if you're going to do it, if you can't, if you're not going to grow it on your own and you're, you're relying on farmer's markets, then you need to have meaningful conversations with the farmers to say,
0: or visit is- their farm. Cause most of those are not farmers that what they do is they go to the same people who sell it to the grocery stores and they put it on the farmer's market. Right. You you need to find how, it.
1: how it's being, how, how the soils and the plants. Yeah. Are. Is it them? It's really critical.
0: Yeah. So anything else you'd like to, I mean, I didn't know we'd talk about the whole time on this, but it worked out really good. This is a good primer. You know, this is going to be solid and people, it'll help a lot of people. No, it's such, so, such a confusing topic and the details are not known that well at all. Uh, and its I believe it's really crucial to integrate into your lifestyle if you want get some melted. And, and, and if you're battling some mysterious illness, because there's no question, there is just no doubt in my mind, is this bioavailable copper leading to optimized utilization of iron is going to be playing a significant role in whatever illness you're contending with.
1: Again, the the, the whole issue is um, making sure people understand that, that we need to be, to be able be able to make more energy mm-hmm. so our immune system can think. And again, the, the focus of conventional medicine has been let's let's attack the enemy. It's like I, I get that. but, but not, not enough has been placed on what do we do to strengthen the host? the host energy. System, especially from a, from an immune standpoint, and the, the immune system needs energy and intelligence. And that's running on the backbone of, of copper. I mean, during COVID, I found 52 articles that clearly documented and proved that copper was instrumental in regulating immune function. It's like, not a lot of people talk about that. And so it's just, it's a whole uh, aspect of, of physiology that has, has been kind of pushed aside um, because of other interests and what have you. But I think as people begin to realize on this energy side, the impact that it has, not just in terms of how we feel, but in terms of our response to whatever threat might be out there, I think it's, it's essential to understand that. And your point about it's a lifestyle issue. That's really what this is. This mm-hmm. isn't a oh, I'm going to take some supplements and be fine. Mm, no, no. The shift in your thinking about how you're going to live your life, how you're going to act have access to food, what you're going to do to prepare, things like that.
0: Yeah, so it's key. And again, it's not a call to, oh, if a little good is more is better and to mega dose on copper because that can get you into deep weeds and it's not a magic bullet that you're going to, necessarily have hyperimmune function in a few days. It's it's a this is a long-term play. This is a marathon, this is not a sprint.
1: Exactly.
0: But once you've identified these variables, you can address them. You've got the lab parameters that you can monitor your progress and you can see it. But I think the take home message is if you pretty much everyone, everyone's got to be blood donated, getting rid of their blood removing it. I mean you just have to if you want to optimize your health. Have you ever seen a clinical condition, I, I'm sure they're there because it's, there's always an exception that they really should have iron. I mean, can you describe a scenario where that would be the case? Um,
1: no, that's a, it's a fair question. Uh, one of my students in uh, Los Angeles um, had severe blood loss, menstrual blood loss for um, probably about eight, uh, seven or eight years. And but she was she was totally on board with um, this conversation that we're having. She was mm-hmm. philosophically, emotionally, and physically devoted to it. And, but her, her hemoglobin got down to three.
0: And so for folks- Slowly, because if it went acutely, she'd be dead.
1: Yeah, exactly. So people need to know that um, hemoglobin can, can go down to 10. That's not a big deal. It really isn't. You know, getting below 12 is, is not, the, not the crisis that has been made out to be. Right. But, but between 10 and 5, believe it or not, and I think you know this, but for, for the audience, between 5 and 10, that loss of hemoglobin is corrected by heart function, by the pumping action of the heart. And the heart will make up for the lack of hemoglobin down to a hemoglobin of 5. Again, as you say, it's a gradual process. When you start to get below five, you've, you're now changing the whole uh, dynamic and parameter of, of the body. And when she presented to the hospital with a hemoglobin of three, um, it, was, it was against her desire, but she yielded to the um, physician that she was working with. And she did get a blood transfusion, not an iron transfusion. And that seemed yeah. to be all that she needed to then get it back. And now she's back up into, I think she's over 10 now. I think she may be oh, 10 and 12.
0: Yeah, I would not have given her an iron something. I would have given her a transfusion too. That's, geez. Right. That's, and that's so, die.
1: so that's, that's only an N of one uh, that I'm personally aware of. Um, I think the idea of, as, as it's called, iron deficiency anemia, I think it's a misnomer. I really think it's copper deficiency anemia. And given that iron's the most significant mineral on the planet, you know, 20 what is it? 26% of the Earth's composition is iron. And I think it's it's a uh, a dysfunction of iron. It's not a deficiency of iron. And so I think I would encourage the, the listeners and the practitioners in the audience that take aggressive action around building up bioavailable copper before you start to turn to iron. Iron is, uh, it's just, it has too many
0: downsides. To it's disaster.
1: <laughs> and, it, and again, it's this, back to the, the, the terrible triad, the relationship that iron has with the linoleic acid, the relationship that iron has to these Uh, sugars that are in our diet, the excess sugars, you know, not, not trying to criticize carbs. It's just too much simple sugars. I I think it's, it's a, it's a metabolic um, dynamic that people don't understand. And iron is in the thick of it. And we've got to be really respectful of our body's ability to naturally metabolize the iron, but that's a function of bioavailable copper, not more iron. And I think that's a, a message that needs airing on a regular basis so that people begin to really adopt it, understand it, and take action on it.
0: Okay, well, this has been great. Uh, I'm sure everyone watching this has benefited and learned something. And many may feel like they've been drinking from a fire hose, (laughs) you know, but that's okay. Because I want to tell you, this is just a tiny, a very, very small fraction of the extent of Morley's clinical wisdom. And he actually teaches courses and has groups that can where you can go and dive deeper. So Morley, why don't you tell, for those who have want to watch this two or three or four times to pick up everything that we've talked to, discussed, what's the next step to find out more?
1: Great question. Uh, we've got, um, there's a website, RCP root cause protocol, rcp123.org. Uh, There are um, social media sites, we have Magnesium Advocacy Group, and we have the RCP page. Uh, We have a community, RCP community, that you can join, uh, where there's, um, every other week, we have uh, Q and A's, people get to ask questions and we do our best to answer them. And then the, the training that you're referring to is, it's called the RCP Institute. Uh, we're, we're about halfway through the, the class 16 now uh, historically we've had 20 or 30 students it uh, started to creep up into the 70s and 90s and this class is 220 uh, students
0: yeah. well, congratulations uh, it's a it's a Word's big, getting out
1: no where it is getting out. and it, it's a very switched on group of people i'm I'm absolutely blown away by the caliber but um, we have intakes um, and the, the, the classes are in the beginning of the year and then the second half of the year, 16 weeks Good.
0: Yeah, so plenty of time. I'm, I'm not sure when this will be uh, posted, but uh, it should be well before the beginning of the year. So give people time to queue it up if they're interested. That'd be great. That's great. great. Yeah, mm-hmm. phenomenal, phenomenal. All right, well, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. It's going to help a lot of people. And I'm really excited to get this message out.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to our continuing dialogue. Again, I'll put a plug-in for that, that Robert Hodges article 78 would be a game changer for people to understand what's really happening if we inject iron into the body. I think people are bad, blown away by it.
0: All right. That sounds good.
1: Okay. Thanks again.